Chapter 9 Progress was slow, and Hilda leaned towards the man's ear. Don't expect an apology. You knew it would be so. If he heard, he didn't answer. He crouched forward, head down, breaking the swirling snow, urging the far up and down low slopes that would bring them to the rim. Well, after nightfall now, it seemed. And Hilda tried to stem her worry that they might be overtaken. No fend folk had ever ventured this far. But no one had defied the fend law either. Despite her anxious brooding, and Hilda nodded in the saddle, snapping upright with the lurching of the beast. Her drowsing brought no comfort, for in it she toiled over endless plain, or held Boreen with bloody hands. But once, as she dipped deeper, the child's face came before her, radiant, serene, not dead, but dormant, and from it came such venison that raised and held her spirit some, even though after she did not know if it had been a true vision or merely a wishful dream. At dusk, they halted to stretch and water the poor thaw. After, Brokan said, they'd push on over the rim. And Hilda climbed down, uneasy in more senses than one. The Fendmen would by now have convened to choose a party of four. Was that party already on its way? Brokan was spreading a light blanket in a shallow dip. He bade her sit on the edge of it with her back to the wind, then got down beside her. Pulling the rest of it up behind them and over their heads, they huddled side by side in the dip, while overhead the sky cleared on a burst of icy air and pale ale floated high above the racing cloud, lighting the plain. And Hilda looked back the way she'd come. A party of four would follow to the death, however far the journey led. If they were already on the road, she prayed that they were resting now also. She took out her food pack and offered the peddler hoya pellets and a boha strip. He took the pellets, waved the boha away with a head shake, offering in turn dried fruits and nuts and seeds, the like of which she'd never seen. You don't care for Bohar, 
and Hilda prided herself on her smoked half-flesh, paired wafer-thin and ruck-dried with a blend of herbs and spices that turned plain crofter's staple into a royal delicacy. I do not. I see, she said dryly. Perhaps you've more a mind for a juicy haunch, or tender shoulder, fresh turned on the spit. Brookan shook his head. Gurdons don't eat flesh, he said, then added, Neither do they judge those who do. So eat your boha and don't mind me. And Hilda looked down, then set the strip aside. There was plenty of the fruit, Brokan having brought enough for two, he said. How's the leg? Well enough. Let me see. She handed him her corner of the shelter to hold, and leaned over him to examine the bindings. As she'd suspected, the blood had seeped through with the movement of the fur, taking the wound and cracking it open repeatedly. And Hilda took out her flask. Here, you'll need it. She unslung her bag of cures and once more set to work, regardless of the cold wind blasting her doishan at her back and whipping hair into her eyes. Despite her care, he flinched. And Hilda? Yes? I'll take that stone, if it's handy. Smiling, and Hilda fished out Suthro. Hold it in your left hand, so. Now. Close your eyes and picture the pain flowing into the stone. She stripped away the blood-caked bindings, found the scored and punctured flesh oozing. Good. Now she cleared the pus, dabbed the wound with stinging italic, then soothed it with salix. Finally, she covered it with a napkin from Brokan's pack, probably fingered from some rich man's laundry basket. Then, over his protests, bound the hole with strips cut from her doshan. He'd let go the shelter, and now lay back, staring skyward. More than ever, he looked like Auxia, with sharp-beaked profile etched against the stars. Better? Nodding, he held out his left hand to return the stone. Keep it for a while. She waved his fist away. Thank you. He swiveled the injured leg away from her and sat up. You saved it, haven't you? Oh, not really. It'll heal more quickly, that's all. 
You lie, he said harshly. Don't do that. It doesn't become you. No more than it does you, she snapped back. You, with your talk of not hurting. I'll speak truth, and you will. Adahi venom is in the flesh, the deepest tissue, even the blood, which would long since have boiled you into a fever but for my salves. Your blood is safe. The leg will heal. Yet there'll be a scar, and... Pain, too, for many a moon, when the weather's wrong. He smiled again, that quick, wry smile of his. And that's good, he said. Whether because she'd spoken the truth, or that he'd heal, she couldn't tell. He made to stand, but she pushed him back, drew the shelter up over her head, Signal him to take up his side. A ten space more, she said, and the leg will go much farther. He sighed. And you wish, but then we are on our way again. I'm sorry, he added. You must be no less anxious to be going on than I. Tell me. And Hilda braced herself against questions that she could not, would not answer. But if he'd been about to quiz her, he changed his tack, tilted his head, looking up. Four fears bright tonight. A good omen, no? And Hilda breathed in relief. So your folk say that too. She followed his gaze to the brilliant star above their heads, outshining the pale moon. The cond folk hold many quaint beliefs about the heavens, he murmured, by imperial decree. Oh? Emperor Morgan tells us that up there is giant flame that would burn us to a crisp but for the canopy Emperor Gar the First made for our protection. Oh, merciful Qua, go on. The shield is pierced with various holes affording patterns to guide travellers and tell the seasons. Really? And... How did Gar make such a huge thing? And however did he get it up there? Brokan's eyebrows rose. By divine power, of course, to which men attribute all things that lie beyond demonstrable reason, and also with the aid of Imperial Hradim, who laboured their whole lifetime over astrolabe and divining glass. Even now, according to our latest emperor, astronomers and metallurgists work constantly to maintain the shield against mortal gravity and the vagaries of the elements. She swivelled to face him squarely. And you? What do you think?
Nay, Brokan said solemnly. First, hear the rest. So that we don't die of the dark and of nightly rooms, there is a second, lighter cover, replacing the first ever so many spaces, letting in more of the fire to warm us and make things grow. You smile. What say you? I think, she drew her corner of the pad more closely about her, that therein lies harmonure enough to bury my bean-bed utterly. You? Oh, well, as member of the Merchants' Guild, am I constrained to uphold the Empress' claims. But in private, I'm a fellow gardener. She found herself laughing outright. Why? He turned to her earnestly. Cond is built on seven hills. On their crowns are set war beacons. As a boy, I saw them lit at Emperor Morgram's accession. I recall the flames waving in the dark, like agnost fronds thrashing in full tide. I asked my father why some of the fires were bigger and brighter than others. The fires, he said, being in identical braziers, were all of like heat and size. Well, they didn't look the same to me. And do you know why? He tapped and held his knee. Some were closer, and some farther away. Now, see up there, he pointed. Those stars differ in size and brightness, even colour, just like those beacons. I think them likewise all separate fires, some nearer, some farther away. Though how near or far I'd hesitate to guess, for who knows how high the sky reaches above us, or where it may end. Where indeed? And Hilda was warming to this peddler, who looked like Auxia and spoke like a sage, what if I tell you that you speak truly, and more, that those fires wheel through space faster than any thaw? He turned to face her, his eyes deep-shadowed in the angles of his silvered face. I would agree. For what thaw could ride the world in one day as does bright Demiel? I'd sooner believe that than in iron sky-shields branded with the Emperor's mark. He leaned in towards her so closely that she felt his breath warm on her cheek. On whose authority do you tell this? I can't say. Can't? Or won't, Scorda. She didn't answer. 
you no more? Perhaps. Then we shall speak of it again. With a grunt and a sigh, Brokan shifted and stood up, reaching for her hand. Released from his spell, and Hilda climbed to her feet and reached for the used bindings to bury them under a stone, then paused, remembering the Adahi. Here, I'll take them. Brokan shoved them into a saddlebag and picked up the blanket. By the time Anne Hilda had helped fold and pack up, their closeness was gone, dispelled by Brokan's briskness and the cold. Now she began to feel misgiving. Her star knowledge was secret squadron law, which she'd never before imparted to anyone. She bit her lip. This pretentious peddler, he'd drawn her out. As member of the Merchant's Guild, such grandiose talk. She'd been fooled by his charm, honed, no doubt, by a lifetime's practice on gullible hearthrakers. Her face burned. What was she thinking of? She knew nothing of this man, save that he claimed to be a cousin of Greer. Greer, come to think, what did she know of that one, beyond his visits? She chucked in annoyance at the man's power to draw her out at her own laxity. For shame! Had she not already trusted one man too many? She prepared to mount the thar, her body cringing at the prospect of more hours in the saddle, her tired shoulders flinching from the pull of the anuk's straps. Even as she bent to hitch it higher, Honey gave way and she'd have fallen, but for Brokan's steadying arm. Here, let me. He took hold of it to relieve her of its weight, seemed surprised that she wouldn't let go. Thank you, no, she said stiffly. He withdrew his hand. And you will. He helped her mount in silence and climbed up before her. She'd offended him, but too bad. He slewed to face her. Where exactly are you headed? I, I don't know. Cond, maybe? In that case, think again about not entrusting me with that thing. Yourself, too, for that matter. For why? Her voice came out tight and icy as the wind. Facing her more squarely, he spoke with scarce suppressed irritation. Kong is a city, like every other city in the known world. It has a wall around it, and a gate through which all must come and go, even the king. 
pass through that gate, you give your name. If your name is on the city roll, and the captain is so disposed, then maybe you pass. If your name isn't on the roll, then you're searched and questioned. Searched and questioned? And Hilda stared back at him, dismayed. Any item in your possession which the captain desires, he keeps, Brokan went on. If, after that, you still want to live in Cond, then your name is entered on a roll. If you fill the captain's pocket, he might put you on the city roll. But then your purse is ever after open to him. If you can't or won't give gold, then you put on the alien's role, which means that the powers that be can do whatever they want with you whenever it pleases them without recourse under the law. Do what? Anything from pressing you into the king's service to selling you for gold, though, he added, who'd buy your tongue? And Hilda bit her lip. I shan't go to Condvin. And don't even think to try elsewhere. It's the same all over. Each city has its soldiers, its ward, and its king, save Gnack, which has the emperor. From time to time, the kings fight, walls are knocked down, a king is killed. But they're soon replaced, the walls and the kings, always. If, she said, your son be ill as you say, we'd best move on. Brokan's face tightened. And you will, he said, and turned away. As he turned, she caught at his shoulder, felt unexpected sinew under the folds of his cloak. He checked, looking down at her hand. It's not that I don't trust you, she said. He nodded curtly. You lie. Don't. Do that. It does not become you, the gesture said. No matter. Your affairs are no concern of mine. Yet one good turn deserves another, and his tone softened. I would help you, Anne Hilda. Her cheeks flushed at the change of voice. I cannot go to Cond. He breathed out heavily. I see that far from priming you, I put you off. Listen, he went on. There's a safer way to enter Cond, you and your precious squad bag. She looked to him sharply, which is... He smiled. It can wait. Meanwhile, he took her hand, shook it gently. Look at you. 
Look at the set of your back. Please, give me that load and I'll set it on the pommel as tenderly an it were a new-born babe. And Hilda caught her breath. Did he know? Had he guessed? His look seemed innocent enough. She shifted, feeling the dead weight of the Anuk pulling her down. Careful, she warned herself. You're letting go again. Oh, the dryad, take me if I plan to steal your herbal secrets, he exploded, then sighed. Trust me, please. He held out his hand. And Hilda reached for the straps. I'd rather it were on your back. Brokan sighed again. Get it done. She unstrapped the harness and fitted it to him, taking her time about it. There. Careful. What's inside is more dear to me than mine own self. Brokan shrugged in protest at the sudden weight. The dry axe What's in there? A precious Suthros grandam? You did insist, Anhilda said. She put her arms about Brokan's middle again as they moved off and pressed her face to the Anuk, praying that her impulse not play her false. Grunting as Pathar picked up pace, she tightened her grip on the peddler's waist and grimly held on. The light failing, Stuga called a halt. The Adahi are exhausted, and we must eat. Let's raise the shelter, take a rest. Without quibble, they tethered and fed the Adahi, the Thars, erected the windbreak, lit a lantern, then portioned out their rations. Anchor watched the rest, scooping the mess with their fingers, then, grimacing, started on his own. A bowl of cold meal and strips of boha. Not enough even for a woman. But as Stugar then remarked, they didn't know how long their food might have to last. Longer than I'd wish, Anka heard Paha mutter. For crossing the rim, I feel it in my bones. Oh? Sugar cocked his head. I see you will not want for a new scorer when we get home. Paha thrust out his lower lip, but said nothing. Stugar was deputy headman and leader of the party of four. Feeling a sudden need for fresh air, Anka set down his bowl and crawled outside. There, in the teeth of the wind, he stood and gazed along the way they were to go. A rack for them, Horan Ragnar. Anka started. Behind him, Fawn was relieving himself into the dark. 
I have envied you these eight summer-arms, ma'am. The blacksmith came to stand at his elbow and raised a wide palm. Peace. A moment. Then Anchor laid his own, a perfect match against it, pressing, releasing, until both palms found the point of equilibrium. The two men stood thus, gulping icy air, eyeing each other unblinking. Fawn's voice came softly. You bear your trial well. I thank you. They released palms. The trouble that woman has made for you. Anchor held his tongue. She was so well prepared. They all say she had expected it. Village women have not better to do than to string together idle words. If there's nothing happening, they make things up, Anchor said quickly. Vaughn laughed. I agree. That woman was close. Close. Knew everyone's secrets, yet we knew naught of her, well hid behind her scordery. The smith spat. They say Horavorin knew of the taint also, and that was why no child has come in all these years. She didn't know, Anchor said quickly then, as quickly added, or I'd have found out. The smith nodded. The Skorda loved her daughter well, didn't she? Aye, too well. Anchor sensed a trap, but couldn't change Farn's drift. So, wonder is that she let this one through to ripeness, Farn went on. Of course, she had no say in it, being barred from your door. Anchor's nails cut his palms. Another minute, and the man would feel his fist. The shelter flap lifted, and Stugar crawled out. Oren Farn, Oren Ragnar, come. We're on our way. His face afire, Anchor bent to help dismantle the shelter. All that had been said, and all that it implied, must have been clearly audible through the shelter wall. Farn, pretending to befriend him, and all the while leading him along. He should have known that one meant to bring him trouble. One hand-press didn't erase eight sun-rounds of enmity. Anchor mustn't let himself forget that every other man there also belonged to the Council of Six. He set his jaw. Whatever happened, he must stay alert and keep to himself if he would stay alive. Barely one space later, the Adahi mustered around 
a shallow dip, digging frantically, sending up showers of dirt, until Paha called them to order. Not far now, the handler said in evident relief. A score of four ha hides say we're almost on her. A score of four ha hides? Anchor remounted grimly. In that moment, he'd have given half his season's cull to prove the little handler wrong. Mm-hmm.